Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. That's one small step. One eyewitness. One major pop cultural event. You had to be there, uncover stories that shed light on our most iconic moments. Like real enemy. Each week, a different host takes on the task of finding and interviewing one person within 48 hours who was there with no idea what their event will be. Come join the ride. Your assignment is to find an eyewitness who was in mission control in Houston when we first landed on the moon in 1969. Oh, no. 1969. You have 48 hours to find and interview someone who was there. Uh, should I get in touch with somebody who was on the set of Stanley Kubrick's production of the moon landing? No, I think <laughs> we're going full on NASA. You know you can do this. I'm Naomi Caravani, a comedian and sometimes mercenary podcaster turned private investigator. So I'm on the case to find someone who was at mission control at the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969. Okay. Two, one, zero, all engines running. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. I rewatched the moon landing just to kind of get my bearings. What can I say about it? It's the most viral video of all time. It's been reinterpreted and parodied a thousand times over in advertisements, MTV, Budweiser, Red Bull, Hanes Baked Beans. It's actually kind of no wonder there's so many conspiracies about it. You've seen it so much. It's so embedded in our collective visual memory. You have to forget it's real. And now, no big deal. <laughs> I'll have to find the guys who made the most iconic moment in history possible. First order of business is to beg for help. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a desperate plea on Twitter. Anyone you know or have friends or family who worked for NASA during the Apollo 11 moon landing? Urgent. And sure enough, my network of deadbeats and stay-at-home dads heeds my call. My friend, a comedian and storyteller, Jeff Zimmerman, comes through with the story about his grandfather. His grandfather worked and welded on the Saturn V rocket ship used for the Apollo 11 through 17 moon landings. Here's Jeff. I have a joke. It's an old joke, but you know, I say like my grandpa was a welder at NASA. My dad was a intelligence analyst in CIA during the Cold War, and I used to edit tweets for a shampoo company. Oh, yeah, I remember that, Joe. He was a welder at NASA. In, for, he was a welder in World War II and got a job at NASA in Langley, uh, Virginia, after the war. He was a welder for the U.S. Army? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which side of World War II was he on? There were a lot of Nazis working on the space program. <laughs> the stuff he saw in World War II biased him against <laughs> a lot of people. But anyway, yeah, so he worked on the first Apollo moon lander and the space shuttle, first space shuttle. 
And when I was a kid, we used to go to the, did you ever go to the Air and Space Museum? In D.C.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you walk in, there's an Apollo moon lander, like right there in the lobby or like very near the front. Because they like, they left one on the moon and this was like the practice one or whatever that they put in the museum. And, and he would point out through the windows of all the joints that he like welded on the thing. Like, yep, there, to that one. Damn. Kind of like the last American dream, right? This guy from like a farm way out in Ohio learns skills in the military and then uses them to be a part of this national push to space. Did he ever talk about like what the work environment was like? <laughs> they played a lot of fucking pranks on each other. Like <laughs> He talked about that <laughs> yeah. a lot. <laughs> to hear him talk, you would think they just goofed around. You would be amazed that they landed on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> He had this story about some guy who always drove like one of the golf carts or whatever they used to get around, always drove it real fast and was always hot dogging around. And so they like welded a little bit of metal in the garage door opener track so that it just was a couple inches too short, <laughs> you know, ripping into the hanger and tore the fucking roof off of the thing and crashed the golf cart. They could have just welded the space capsule shut. The guys got to the moon and been like, Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's wild to think about all this stuff. And you're like, no, that was just somebody's job. Like, somebody was like, fuck this. I yeah. Get off of this. Yeah, I remember him telling me that it was, like, so hot in the summertime. Because it was the early 60s, and so they didn't have air-conditioned anything. And you had to wear all this leather to protect yourself. They drank so much water, and they would hand out salt tablets all day that you had to take at regular intervals and make you drink, like, gallons of water because you just soaking your work leather that you had to wear in D.C. in that swampy heat. All right, look at me. First call in and I found a dead guy. Okay, so then what next? I asked my mom about it to get a better idea of what the moon landing meant to individual people because all I know about the moon landing was that everyone and their mother was watching. She said she watched the moon landing at her grandparents' house and that she was excited to see it. What kind of struck me about that conversation was that she knew it was going to happen. Not only was it the most publicized event in history, it was also the most hyped up. Here's my conversation with Julia, the producer. I just did two phone calls, one with the grandson of the welder, and yeah, it was a cool story about his grandfather who like learned the welding skill in World War II and then got to apply that. Building spaceships. And then wow. um, I spoke to my friend who wrote about astronomical illustration. And there's also a really cool story there about all these artists who were employed to popularize the space mission to the American public. How? They commissioned artists to make drawings of outer space. And James Webb actually was very adamant that there should be artists to not only photograph, because artists will make things look more interesting and pretty and, and hook people in. Lois is my third point of contact, eight hours into the search. She worked for NASA and did her PhD on the NASA art program and mid-century space illustration. I met Lois at a figure drawing group while living in DC. 
I, I actually joined the group after a failed Bumble date. Lois, not my Bumble date, was doing a fellowship at the Air and Space Museum, the one where Jeff's grandpa's welded joints on the Saturn lander were placed at the entrance. I picked her brain about the Apollo 11 moon landing. How did everyone know about it? I think there's actually, like, arguments that you could defend pretty easily, that Apollo 11 was, like, the most heavily mediated event of the 20th century, just in terms of a televised spectacle. So much so that it prompted a huge spike in television sales in places where that wasn't yet, like, a widespread consumer product. In terms of, like, the art and publicizing of it, I'd say the biggest thing to look at for the Apollo program is actually the NASA art program, which ran from 1963 until like kind of like the shuttle program is way around. But James Webb, who was basically like the NASA administrator who put the Apollo moon landing, who set it really in motion, he was not a scientist. He was not an engineer. He came from the State Department. And he was really like the Cold War hearts and minds guy. And so yeah. for him, implementing a program that was, like, going to showcase to the public what the cultural significance of the space program was, like, hugely important. That was really a struggle of the early days of the space program. I think we lose sight of this now because the moon landings were ultimately a success. And we, like, think about them as being, like, the greatest technological achievement of the 20th century, right? It could have been just, like, catapulting some guys. To their death. Oh, yes. No, 100%. Yeah, exactly. In fact, one of my favorite artifacts of the space age is the speech that Richard Nixon would have read if the moon landing would have failed. <laughs> he adapted it from the rights that they read to sailors' bodies when they're lost at sea. It's like the only yeah. analog that we have for people dying in that way, which is crazy. And that's where the James Webb take is interesting, right? His whole sort of rationale, and the other administrators who helped get this program off the ground, their sort of take was that the entire space program itself was going to be very heavily photographed. By that point in the 1960s, photographs circulating in print journalism, they wanted something that was going to feel a little bit less fleeting, right? And they felt that hiring artists to do this type of, like, plain air observation would be a way to, like, capture in the image for cultural significance of what was happening. Yeah. They were, like, pretty up space a little bit to to make it more palatable to the public. Put some lipstick on it. <laughs> yeah, totally. What is it that makes a photograph meaningful when you look at it as an image? It's not always clear to the viewer right, that what a, a photographic subject is intended to convey is something grand in the cultural sense. And I think that they felt like the, the, the technical sophistication was something that was easy to pictorialized, but the, the impact on American society was really the more fleeting subject. It's really interesting because in the early 60s, the program like explicitly sought out artists and illustrators who made really representational artwork. These administrators were basically like, we feel like the technical content of the work of the space program is complicated enough. We really want people who are going to enter this program and like do very literal representations of technicians working on rockets or here's a gantry at Cape Kennedy. But the guy who did all of the promotional artwork for 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out in 68, which was just like a year before the moon landing, he was one of the biggest artists who participated in this program and it really helped put him on the map. And so it is this like weird 
forgotten chapter, I think, in the history of the cultural output of the moon landing that this art program even existed at all. So what happened to the NASA art program? Well, Republican administrations had been tiring of spending money on space and literally anything to do with it. It didn't help that Robert Rauschenberg entitled his lithographs of the Saturn V spaceship Stoned Mood, since he was carving in stone. Rauschenberg was an abstract expressionist painter and multimedia artist who sometimes repurposed trash from the streets of New York City into artwork. It wasn't exactly something that appealed to traditional conservatives. One of the last of the program's participants was Lori Anderson, also a multimedia artist whose work spans installations to sculptures to pop music. She composed a musical for the NASA art program called The End of the Moon. What does an artist in residence actually do? I mean, what does that mean with a space program? And they said they didn't really know what that meant, and what did I think it meant? And I thought, who are these people? And this didn't really speak to a lot of people. In 2005, Chris Chocola, not the Count, an Indiana Republican representative, successfully amended the Science State Justice and Commerce Annual Appropriations Bill to prohibit federal funds from being used to employ an artist at residence at NASA. Imagine that being your platform. I also like came across some like watercolors of the mission control room. So there were like just artists hanging around. I think there was like one courtroom sketch artist who was there too. I don't know if you're thinking about the Fred Freeman illustration. Oh no, I found something, somebody like Crystals Jackson had a watercolor of the mission control room. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know that one, but it was like a very popular subject with, with the artist. That was like the big thing about the NASA art program is that the honorariums were very modest. Most of the artists who participated um, were financially compensated by the fact that they were able to like price the paintings that they made however they wanted and then use those as tax write-offs. In terms of like the actual money that they were given by the agency, it was like they were each given like seven hundred dollars, which was like barely even enough money to cover transportation out to Cape Kennedy. Um, But the trade-off was they were given really high levels of access. I tried to get in touch with Crystal Jackson. I stumbled across her watercolor of the first Mission Control, which was in Florida and then changed to Houston in 1965. She continued her career from courtroom sketch artist to NASA sketch artist to exclusively watercolors of butterflies. It's kind of beautiful. She also got deep into the UFO world. There's a lot of crossover here. Fred Freeman, who Lois mentioned, also had a sketch of the launch control in Florida. Not quite mission control, but close. NASA moved mission controls from Florida to Houston in 1965 so that they could recruit students from the nearby universities. That's why everyone was so young. And house these people cheaply. So Aldo just got back to me. He suggested Rick Sternbach, who I think was actually at the Apollo 17 night launch, which is not quite Apollo 11, but was a doozy. And Rick Sternbach is fucking awesome. He worked on the art department for Cosmos and on the art department for the Star Trek motion picture, which came out in 1979. And he's a fucking legend of 
hardware, illustration designing, fictitious spacecraft for different science fiction franchises. Yeah, he's amazing and also extremely generous. He was also an illustrator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was an illustrator. Awesome. He, I don't think, was ever technically a part of the NASA art program, but he definitely swam in those circles. He worked with Carl Sagan on the art department for Cosmos. Good news. Rick was at the Apollo 11 launch in 1969 because, well, who wasn't? Maybe he knows somebody at Mission Control or someone painting Mission Control? I illustrated things for Isaac Asimov, Joe Haldeman, Gordy Dixon, Paul Anderson, a number of these people I knew and got to do art for their stories. That's incredible. Yeah. My artistic brain is split down the middle, but the two halves are very interconnected. The real science, the real astronomical work, okay, what a number of us did for the cosmos miniseries. Graduated high school in June of 1969. Told my folks, I have to go to the Cape. (laughs) Yeah. And that's pretty much it. I have to go to the Cape. I have to see this happen. So I I think I took an Eastern shuttle down to Florida from the New York area. Like four in the morning, took a cab out to one of the bridges south of the launch pad at the Cape, okay? And there was like a zillion people out there already. Everybody's waiting and watching. The particular bridge, I can't remember exactly which bridge it was. It was about nine nine or ten miles south of Launch Complex 39. Uh-huh. And so everybody was out there waiting, you know, and the sun came up, and you could see the rocket. You could see the Saturn V way off in the distance. And it's this tiny little, from 10 miles away, it was a tiny little white toothpick sticking up. <laughs> and people had transistor radios, and they were listening to the countdown. And 9.32 came, and the Saturn V lifted off, and we all watched. And it was astounding. It was the first major launch vehicle that I had ever seen. And everybody was just astounded and amazed and happy and cheering. And the Saturn V went up and curved out over the ocean. And that was it. (laughs) We saw it. We witnessed history. Got a ride back to my motel with a woman who lived in the area. And she was picking up tourists. And she knew all the back roads because there were traffic jams like crazy afterwards. So she was giving a bunch of people rides back to wherever they needed to go. Oh, wow. So there was like a community created by the rocket launch. And kids are connected to a lot of this NASA and STEAM type learning, where kids will build model rockets and go out to a range and fire them off and recover them on their little parachutes. And that's what I did back in the mid-60s. And yeah, all of that got entwined, learning about spaceflight and building actual rocket models and plastic kits and all of that stuff. It's crazy to think how much of sci-fi and the art that science fiction inspired might have informed the real-life science that got us to the moon. Thanks to Rick, 
30 hours into this journey, I finally got to the launch site of the Apollo 11 in 1969. So how much closer can I get? Well, what I wonder is what does it mean to be in mission control? This is probably a really ignorant question, but... I think they mean like Houston being there in front of a computer. I know that, but if you're at the place where astronauts took off, how is being in mission control any closer to being to the moon than being at the place where you saw the astronauts off? Neither group is on the moon. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and this guy is like happy that I reached out to him. He was like, you've come to the right place. <laughs> I mean, I think what this is a meditation on, just like who was there. And the only people there were the people that landed, right? And none of them are alive, right? Is there one of them that's alive? Buzz is still alive. He posted a picture of his new young wife. <laughs> How old is his wife? How old is Buzz Aldrin's wife? Anders. She's like 40 or 50. Not incredibly egregious, but... So I'm going to talk to this eminent historian who was there at the launch site, and then at the end of the conversation, I'm going to be like, can you point me to anyone in mission control? (laughs) Yeah. Really? And then honestly, I think you can get your genes. I really do. Here's my conversation with moon landing historian John Logston. He was also at the launch at Cape Canaveral in 1969. I wanted to talk about Apollo 11. So I read your essay and you were basically as close as anybody could be that morning. Uh, That's true. Well, except for the people in the launch center. Yeah. Launch control center. The distance at the press site, which is where I was determined by how far you away you had to be in case the thing exploded. Yeah. So that was about three miles. Three, three and a half miles, yeah. And what was the mood around you? Well, anticipation. This is a little like sex. There's a lot of foreplay. Yeah. <laughs> and then the then the actual act is over very quickly. Yeah. And it's disappointing? No. <laughs> no. Well, not for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a lot of anticipation. You got there at 6 in the morning, and it took off at 9.32. Correct. So what were those intervening hours like? Well, from uh, when I arrived until 6.35, it, it was another set of anticipations because we were waiting for the crew to come out of their quarters. Again, that was over very quickly. Then you had to navigate a traffic jam the six or so miles from the crew building to the uh, press site and, and the launch site. The crew even got stuck in a traffic jam. See, I told you everyone was there. So many people were there. The takeoff was almost delayed by a traffic jam. The astronauts were almost delayed. You know what? I wonder if Buzz Aldrin, like, thought about punching the press people in a fit of road rage on the way to the launch pad. Why the moon? Why was everyone so horny for the goddamn moon in the 60s? Good thing I'm talking to the historian who attempted to answer why John F. Kennedy made the announcement to go to the moon at Rice University in May 1961. Lots of people have speculated on a variety of reasons having to do with his ego 
And the decision came right in the middle of the Bay of Pigs fiasco, and he needed something positive. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so the failed Bay of Pigs invasion when they got some Cuban mercenaries trained in Guatemala to try to stage an uprising in Cuba, and it failed miserably, and... So, yeah, this would kind of distract from that very embarrassing failure. Interesting. The dates, Naomi, are relevant. One thing we haven't mentioned, the Russians launched the first person into orbit, Yuri Gagarin, on April the 12th, and the Bay of Pigs started on April the 14th. Oh, wow. On one side, the Russians had just done something that the whole world admired, and Kennedy looked weak and vacillating. The Bay of Pigs is maybe the most embarrassing thing to happen to the U.S. On April 14th of 1961, just a few months into Kennedy's administration, a U.S. plan to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba failed miserably. This was just one of the many attempts that failed that was concocted by the CIA. And the CIA's plan was to train Cuban exiles in Guatemala to storm the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, as this bay was called. And this would inspire the Cuban population to join them and overthrow Castro. Within hours, the invaders were rounded up by the local population. And Kennedy made the difficult decision not to offer air support to the expat invaders working under the CIA. Some would say a reason why the CIA had a grudge against Kennedy, or one of the many reasons. But so what? (laughs) We got our asses handed to us by a small island in the Caribbean. Well, about a month later, Kennedy announced, we were going to the freaking moon, okay? In like 10 years, goddammit. Also, you gotta admit, it would be pretty fucking cool if we got a guy up there what are your thoughts do you have hope that we're gonna get to mars (laughs) well first we gotta get back to the moon yeah and uh the program that nasa has called artemis sister of apollo is not in very robust shape and you have in particular mr musk but also jeff bezos saying they may get back there on a private basis first yeah And you have China saying it's going to do it also. Again, a competition to get there first. So once China gets somebody there, then we'll really be motivated. The fact that teachers would stop class and bring in televisions, was that like public policy or that was just what happened? No, it was a collective decision of how much it was of interest to Most people, not everybody, by the way, there was a civil rights protest at Kennedy Space Center the day before the launch. Oh, I didn't know about that. Reverend Ralph Abernathy organized a poor people's protest that the money should be being spent on poverty and not on going to the moon. Yeah, I'm familiar with Whitey on the Moon, the song. Which was already out. I didn't realize it was out before the moon landing. I think. One would have to fact-check that to be sure. (laughs) So I fact-checked it, and it looks like the historian John Logsdon was wrong. The song Whitey on the Moon appeared on Jill Scott Heron's debut album in 1970, along with The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. But the historian's not totally wrong. 
What's important to note was that the criticism of the Apollo program, juxtaposed with ever-increasing urban decay, was already in the ether in the mid-60s as the Apollo moon program was in development. Whitey on the moon wasn't the first piece of art to criticize gallivanting on the moon while the world burned, but the song crystallized the sentiment perfectly. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell, and Whitey's on the moon. Was all that money I made last year for Whitey on the moon? How come I ain't got no money here? Hmm, Whitey's on the moon. You know I just about had my fill of Whitey on the moon. I think I'll send these doctor bills, air mail special, to Whitey on the moon. NASA spent $25 billion in the 60s shooting a few lucky nerds into the sky for what seemed like a joyride. So, of course, there were many who saw better ways to spend the money. There was a painting in 1967 called Flag on the Moon, Die N-Word by Faith Ringgold. And Marvin Gaye had a song out called Inner City Blues. And in it, he sang that rockets, moonshots, spend it on the have-nots, money we make, for we see it, you take it. The Poor People's March John Logsdon mentioned, the same group that marched on Washington with MLK in 1968, brought two mule-drawn carts to Cape Canaveral to highlight their point. NASA Administrator Thomas Paine even met with Reverend Abernathy on the eve of the launch, and the Reverend said a great nation ought to be able to take care of those who are less fortunate as well as undertake space exploration. And he asked Payne to put NASA's resources to work solving the problem of poverty. The NASA administrator agreed to do everything in his power, so he said, and had a request for the Reverend, pray for the lives of the three men aboard the Apollo 11. The Reverend agreed. So I gotta ask, do you know anyone in mission control, John? Just to be a little pedagogical. There were two mission controls. Yeah. There was a launch control at Kennedy Space Center that managed the launch of the Saturn V. The moment the Saturn V cleared the launch tower, control shifted to what you're thinking of as mission control in Houston. I see. So there was one set of people that managed the launch and another set of people that managed the mission after launch all the way through landing. And do you know anybody who would be still alive who would either be in launch control or mission control at the time of the Apollo 11? Yeah, I met now three or four years ago, the astronaut who himself went to the moon in 1972. His name is Charlie Duke, but he was the one talking to the astronauts at the time they were landing. Uh-huh. And the flight director was a guy named Gene Kranz. Yeah, I'm familiar with Gene Kranz. I just assume he's probably the most busy person. <laughs> well, he's got a book out. He might like the publicity. NASA has a very elaborate public affairs operation, including at Houston. And if your request is someone who was in mission control at the time of Apollo 11, they may be able to find someone for you. Hello, Webb. Hey, Naomi. How's it going? 
Good. I had two big interviews today. I have a friend who worked on astronomical illustration for her PhD, and she connected me with a space illustrator who was at the Apollo 11 takeoff in Florida. Yeah, Cape Canaveral. Yeah, he was at Cape Canaveral. Yeah, I chatted with my friend for a while just about like space illustration and how the NASA art program was devised to like really sell space, even though that they had telescope photographs, they really needed to make space look pretty for the public. Accessible, not just dark. Dark and a mess of stars. So there was a whole NASA art program, which a lot of anonymous artists participated in. They were like coming from the Navy and different parts of the Army working during World War II illustrating space flight craft and stuff like that. And then they ended up in NASA. So that was like a really interesting story. And then she connected me with this illustrator who was kind of straddling the two worlds of the scientific community, like doing scientific drawings, but also doing sci-fi drawings. And he eventually went on to illustrate for Star Trek. Whoa, that's pretty cool. So I chatted with him today. She really tried to sell me on the last moon takeoff, uh, Apollo 17, which... Yeah, it was a night launch, so it was much more spectacular. And there was like this cruise ship that was put together by this guy, Richard Hoagland, who was like a space enthusiast, not very well educated, and just really would try to bring like the scientific community, the sci-fi community, celebrities together and try to educate the public about space. And he put together this cruise that happened during the Apollo 17 space launch. Norman Mailer was on the cruise, Carl Sagan, Don Davis, and also Rick, who I spoke to, was on that cruise and they had different talks and like famous sci-fi authors. I think that's awesome so far. Are you still going? Uh, yeah, I'm still going. So today is a national holiday though and NASA is shut down. Oh, uh, that's right. I have a contact at PR at NASA and they told me I could get in contact with Bill Moon or Gene Kranz and they said some other people in mission control who are still alive will be available, but they won't be able to get me an appointment yet. Have you seen Apollo 13, the movie? Mm -hmm. That's uh, who Ed Harris plays. Yeah, no, I know when I was first researching, I was like, oh, I'm not going to try to get Gene Kranz. That seems crazy because he's the top dog, but everybody's like, he's the most responsive person. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I think he's the most public-facing <laughs> person and maybe like likes right. the attention. Who knows? So there's a number of people that I could get in mission control if that is the mission. Yeah, let's see if we can do it. I mean, I think, you know, you've gone pretty far, which is freaking awesome. Like, I'm blown away. When I gave you the prompt yesterday, I was like, oh, my God, am I setting someone up for failure? And it seems like not only have you gotten within three miles of the launch you've gotten the whole sphere of the story all of it's really interesting they put three people on the moon or i guess in total it's 18 or 19 different ones yeah using a computer that's like that had the power of a ti-83 that we used in math class growing up it just shows what humans can do when given a, a seven or eight year deadline and competition with the russians and i think it's just yeah it's wild 
it, it, it like never ceases to blow my mind. What humans can do with an eight-year deadline? What about what I can do with a 48-hour deadline? Get some dead guys. I asked my boyfriend for help. Anders, he sent me a PDF of phone numbers from an Apollo 11 reunion NASA had in the 1980s. This was getting desperate, I know, but all their phone numbers were listed. Sandra K. Lewis. I think she's dead. These are all like the Texas-based people because the reunion was like in Texas. The number you have reached is not... Just Googling people now. Please leave your message for 666. Now I'm Googling numbers because numbers just kind of come up on Google sometimes. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Here's producer Julia Thompson. Is Anders being supportive or does he... No, he tried to help me. He's sending me dead people. Another dead guy. (laughs) Well, I wonder what it'll be like to talk to the genes. I bet you can get to Gene. But there's so much of Gene out there. Who needs Gene? I agree. There are movies made about Gene. Honestly, I think I'm wasting my time trying to get to Gene. And Julia and Webb are lunatics who think anything is possible. I had two hours left to this mission, and I was getting really desperate. So I reached out to some more people, and somebody I can't say who got me Gene Krantz's phone number. I called the number and someone picked up. I could not believe it. It's that easy. You just need a phone number. Hi there. I'm calling to speak with Mr. Krantz. So, short story short, I was able to speak to Gene. He didn't want to be recorded, but I was able to ask him a few questions and he suggested a few of his books to me. You're just going to have to trust me on this one, okay? I spoke to him within the 48 hours and therefore completed this mission. Okay, at first I was a little disappointed that he didn't want to talk, but then I thought, hey, this guy's been interviewed thousands of times and his story has been told so many times by reporters, by Hollywood. I mean, the story of the moon landing is so much more than just the guys on the joystick. It's about the welders who made the craft, the artists who shaped the public's imagination of space and the historians who made sense of it all. And now I can understand that so much more than I would have had I just spoken to Gene. Hey, Webb. Hey, what's up? It's Naomi. I just got off the phone with Gene Kranz, head of mission control. Whoa, (laughs) that is wild. (laughs) So I did what Gene said, and I went to his books, but I couldn't read a book with a few hours left to this ordeal. So I watched a movie, the documentary based on Gene Krantz's book, Failure is Not an Option. I reached out to the filmmaker on LinkedIn, and this was possibly the only successful inquiry I have ever made on LinkedIn. He got back to me and was happy to chat with me about his documentary that stood apart from all the other documentaries you typically see about space. We always hear about the astronauts and the guys who planted flags and played golf on the moon. But the mission control guys who worked 16-hour days, who really took Kennedy's proclamation to heart, were the conductors pulling the strings and making it possible to catapult men to these celestial bodies we spent centuries gazing up at but never touched until 1969. 
They took man into space, but never left the Earth. We had to pull missions literally out of the fire, make the right things happen, and bring these crews back home. They are the men of mission control, engineers who took the dream of spaceflight and made it reality. Flight director Gene Krantz and the men of mission control tell their story for the first time. What interested you in doing a, a documentary about mission control because, you know, everybody's interested in what the astronauts have to say. It seems like every other documentary is about that. The astronauts were the public face of the space program. They were heroes. They had a tremendous number of fans. So the astronauts inhabited that image and the mission controllers were out of the spotlight. People saw them on TV, but they were just a bunch of guys in a room with screens and they all looked the same and they all had shirts and ties. And pocket protectors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, that is one of my most favorite moments of that show. That was really, really funny when you asked each one of them if they wore a pocket protector and they denied it. And then you went back to the picture of them wearing the pocket protector as clear evidence. Yeah, it's a little risky to take the heroes of your story, your protagonists, and to ridicule them um, at the same time as you're trying to elevate them and put them on a pedestal. But I was asking Jay Green questions, and I asked him about that image of the sort of nerdy image. And did you guys have the skinny ties in the shirt? The same thing Jim Lovell referred to that we all mm -hmm. perceive about them. And he cut me off. He was like, first of all, for the record, I never owned a pocket protector. And that was it. When he said that, boom, that was the idea. So from then on, it was like, okay. He was like, absolutely not, no way. And he was indignant to be <laughs> accused of that. So then every interview after that, I asked him. And they all didn't want to admit it. So it, it became a funny sequence. The young men who come to Mission Control in the 60s, and they are all men, live in an engineer's paradise. Intense, high-tech, competitive, and insulated. Outside, an American cultural revolution will soon begin brewing. As the 60s unfold, mission control will be many things. One thing it will never be is hip. They were all had uh, button-down white shirts, narrow ties, and, uh, of course, uh, the, the pocket uh, protectors there for the pens and the pencils. First of all, for the record, I'd never owned a pocket protector. I never wore one in my life. I didn't either. Other people did, but I never owned one. Mine was leather, but I had one. How did astronauts interact with the mission control freaks? These test pilots who face death daily, how did they get on with these nerds? In a documentary about the Apollo 8, also a very cool Apollo, the first manned mission to orbit the moon, I'm becoming an Apollo snob. The astronauts said the flight crew were like equipment on the rocket. Get in there and don't touch anything. John Glenn, the third American to go into space and the first time that somebody went in orbit. And they had a, a light come on in mission control that said his heat shield is loose. And it meant that 
if it was true, when he came back down, it would be like exactly what happened to Colombia. It would disintegrate and burn up. But is the light a false alarm? That's what they were wrestling with. And they didn't tell John Glenn. Yeah. When he landed, he was really angry. It's like, listen, if I'm going to get killed, I want to at least know what's happening. So don't hide anything from me. And the astronauts were really adamant yeah. about that. And, you know, you mentioned looking out the window. The first design for the first spacecraft in Mercury did not have a window. Oh, wow. And the astronauts, <laughs> yeah, the astronauts said, wait a minute, we need a window. And the engineers said, why? If we have to put a window in, that's a potential weak point that could break. And there's all these reasons we don't want to have a window. And the astronauts were like, well, no, sorry. And it was a big fight. And they went back and forth about it. But I just think that some really incredible moments happened in mission control. So many of them that it's almost, if you weren't there and if it didn't get written about in a book or shown in a film, it just happened. And the people who were there know it happened. And there's two stories that we had in the film of just about these mission controllers who just stepped up right out of college under incredible pressure, making these really stressful decisions with seconds to spare. The first one on Apollo 11 when they're landing and the uh, computer got overloaded and kept sounding these alarms and they didn't know is the computer going to stop working or mm -hmm. should we continue? They don't have a lot of fuel. They can't just lie around and wait for it to figure out. And they have to know and decide either we're going to go down, keep going down, or we're going to stop abort and get out right away. And they have to decide quickly. And that guy, Steve Bales, who made the decision, he's there in the film. And all these, no, keep going. It's a computer overload, but we can still safely land. I mean, there are millions and millions of people around the world watching this and billions of dollars and seconds are ticking away. And he's 24 years old. I was really moved by their situation and their dedication. And I thought they're really heroes. They're heroic, even though they weren't celebrities. One guy told us a story that... They almost had a major crisis because the toilet on the space shuttle was malfunctioning and it could have caused them to die. How would it cause them to die? Because when they're flushing the toilet, they're really opening up an opening in the spaceship to outer space. They're trying to flush the toilet out. Yeah, no room for a septic tank on the shuttle, huh? Imagine you clogged the toilet which led to your certain death, and then they would write about that in the history books. That would be one legendary dump. When I was a high school history teacher, I would kind of gloss over the space program as a relic of the Cold War, and I would play Jill Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon for the class. Because, you know, it was a history class. I was focused on these social issues, not science. But if I were to be really honest through this journey i'm like in so much awe of whitey on the moon and if resources had been allocated correctly in this country everyone would be in awe of whoever was on the moon here's rush describing the takeoff of a mission to repair the hubble telescope naomi i cannot describe you can't understand if you haven't been to one the and this was the space shuttle. It wasn't nearly as mm -hmm. big as the moon rockets. 
but you're looking at it, you're five miles away, you can hardly see it, and they light the engines, and the, the light is so bright of that fire coming out that you can't even really look at it directly. It's like looking mm -hmm. at the sun. And it starts moving, and there's a lot of smoke, and it starts rising, and you still haven't heard anything because you're five miles away. And then the sound hits you. It's beyond loud. It's pounding your body. You're feeling it in your chest. All the cars in the parking mm -hmm. lot, their car alarms go off because the, the air is vibrating and moving the cars, shaking the cars. The ground is shaking. It is unbelievable. And when you see it on TV, it's, you know, you have a better view visually, but you don't feel that intense pounding of the earth and the air around you. It was very moving. I, mm -hmm. I actually teared up. You can't imagine the amount of power and to think that while well, humans figured this out and designed this and harnessed this, and then at the top of it are these six or seven humans that I've been hanging around with. You know, it's just, it's very intense. Starting out on this project, I could not have given a rat's ass that bit Jill Scott Heron's sister Nell that we went to the moon, okay? But now, if we go back to the moon, I'll be paying very close attention, not only to NASA and whoever their corporate partners are, but I'll also be watching how it's portrayed by artists and writers, both for and against. I'll be watching how the next moon landing enters our collective memory. Or maybe how it doesn't. No way! <gasps> That's great! We landed on the moon! You Had to Be There is a High Bar production. Created by High Bar. Today's episode, The Moon Landing, was written and hosted by Naomi Caravani. Produced by Julia Thompson and Webb Barr. Story produced by Julia Thompson. Edit, sound mix, and engineering by Teeny Lieberson. Original score by Teeny Lieberson. Artwork created by Dylan Lathrop. Special thanks to our parents, friends, and chosen family. And most importantly, thank you to the artists who have inspired us, because they just had to do it. <laughs>